Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening as we are now the first Sunday in December, really going through our journey through the marvelous Christmas story in the Bible, and today we'll be looking from the first chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. But as I often do, I'll begin with the story. In 1865, just as the American Civil War had shocked the world, was beginning to reach its official end at Appomattox Courthouse, a man from Philadelphia named Phillips Brooks had taken an extended trip to Israel. As he was there, he was spending Christmas, and on Christmas Eve night, he rode on horseback between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and gazed into the brilliant night sky. He went by the traditional site where the shepherds are believed to have been visited by the heavenly hosts of angels, and Brooks and his companions then took part in a Christmas Eve service that lasted from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. in a church built over the traditional site of the Nativity, a five-hour Christmas Eve late night and early morning church service. So seeing as how he had lots of time to reflect on his surroundings, he began to write a song using the quiet town of Bethlehem and the events that occurred at Jesus' birth as his backdrop. The song was, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He wrote it, originally, for children, and it was first sung at Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia in the year 1868. Interestingly, Americans sing it differently than our friends in Great Britain. In America, we sing the song to a tune known, oddly enough, as St. Louis. In Britain, they sing it to a tune called Forest Green. And I would suggest you do what I did and look up these different renditions of the song of O Little Town of Bethlehem on YouTube and listen to them because they are immensely different. But the beauty and truth of the lyrics still ring true and sing true on both sides of the ocean. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You know, there were many breadcrumbs that pointed to the arrival of Jesus and specifically his arrival in Bethlehem. Today we will begin, as I said, our look at the glorious Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew. It's easy to find the very first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 17. Matthew 1, 1 reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. An interesting start, and we'll certainly get to more of the narrative story of the Christmas story in just a moment. But as we begin, I'll remind us all of a few basic things that will help us to better understand this story. There are four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each tells the story of Jesus, but they tell them in slightly different ways to paint a complete picture of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. Optic, as you know, means seeing or having to do with eyes. Sin, S-Y-N, 
is a prefix which means together. So the synoptic gospels see the same story together as they report many of the same details and stories and events of Jesus' earthly life. However, even Matthew, Mark, and Luke have different purposes for writing the Gospels as they were led by the Holy Spirit of God. And since our subject today, our text is from Matthew, he gives us the story of Jesus, and in this we see so many of Jesus's, so much of Jesus' humanity from Matthew's perspective. One of the great mysteries is Jesus being both fully God and fully man at the same time, and fancy theological talk, this is called the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on a human nature, yet he remained fully God at the same time. And So the gospel according to Matthew is aimed primarily at the Jewish person, the person familiar with the Old Testament. Jesus is portrayed as Israel's Messiah, the King of the Jews. Matthew records how the promises God made in the Old Testament with regard to the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus, and Matthew thus begins his book by stating the family tree of Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the heir to the kingdom that was promised to David and his descendants, and it sets the tone for the entire book. Now, if you're not familiar with some of these references, please don't fret. I can help you with that later on, or they're actually rather easy to find. But it is a fascinating story that we see from the Old Testament that now is coming to us in full color in the New Testament. So the remainder of the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that Jesus has the credentials to be Israel's Messiah. Indeed, he is the Christ. Matthew wanted the Jewish people to think back to the opening words of the book of Genesis here, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, hearkened back to the idea of in the beginning, God. There was now a new beginning, a new day had dawned upon the earth once more. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy and this expectation. Again, that opening line, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. If you spent some time reading through the Bible, you know that genealogies can be tough. Genealogies just being essentially the the uh, ancestry of certain people, certain individuals in the Bible, something that is very much so near and dear to the Jewish heart, and indeed even to many hearts today, regardless of our ethnic background. But as we read through genealogies, you find that there are many, many names, many begats and begottens, and the string can be difficult to follow. But Matthew, again, is making a brilliant point here. Jesus' entry into the world has been planned. Jesus is a Jew. He is the rightful king, and he is coming from the line and the lineage and the house of David. The entire Gospel of Matthew, we have the record of the history of Jesus. In this first section that we read, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we have the record of the genealogy. In the scripture that we will get to in just a moment, beginning in Matthew 18, we have the record of the origin of Christ. And in the entire Gospel of Matthew, we have the record of the history of God's redemptive plan through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting and helpful to know a little bit about this Matthew that penned this gospel. Up until becoming a well-known well as a gospel writer on the account of Jesus' life, Matthew was most well-known as a tax collector. Now, much like today, if you're 
sitting at a dinner table with some folks that you're just meeting for the first time and you happen to work for the IRS as a tax collector or an auditor or something of that nature, you're probably going to be a little sheepish about revealing that that is your occupation. Because, as we know, tax collectors have certain stigmas associated with them, both fair and unfair, perhaps. But during this time of Jesus in the ancient world, tax collectors had a special type of infamy during the ancient Roman world. Tax collectors often took far more money than they were required to take, and they pocketed the difference. And there was very little the general populace could do about this sort of criminal behavior. We read a story later on of a man named Zacchaeus who repented of this action during Jesus' life and teachings. So a tax collector of that day, though not particularly popular, was very intelligent. They had to know Greek, they had to be literate, and they had to be a well-organized person. So most New Testament scholars believe the Gospel of Matthew was not the first of the four written, but it's placed as the first book in the New Testament. And there are some reasons for this. The early Christians saw the Gospel of Matthew as important because it had significant portions of Jesus' teaching that are not included in the other Gospels, such as a very full version of the Sermon on the Mount. Also, Matthew is only one of the Synoptic Gospels to have an apostolic author, meaning that Matthew, who was also known as Levi, had followed Jesus as a disciple. He was one of the twelve. Now, some may wonder, why not put Mark first in the Bible, since Mark is widely regarded to be the earliest gospel written? Well, there's really no reason other than that Matthew writes with a distinctly Jewish flavor. This Jewish flavor of the Gospel of Matthew makes for a very smooth transition between the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and now this New Testament that we have presenting Jesus as the Son of God. And so, interestingly though, despite this very Jewish focus from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew ends triumphantly his Gospel with Jesus commanding his fathers after his death, burial, and resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations. So even though the Gospel of Matthew is deeply rooted in Judaism, it is able to look beyond and sees the Gospel itself as more than just a message for the Hebrews. Rather, it is a message for all people, all tribes, all nations, all ethnic backgrounds, indeed the entire world. And Matthew is critical of the Jewish leadership and their rejection of Jesus. While Matthew loved his countrymen, he presented Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he was clear that this salvation was not exclusive to Jews alone. So that's more of the technical side of it. Now let's jump into what is regarded as part of the classic Christmas story. You may recall that only Matthew and Luke include any narrative of the birth of Jesus in their Gospels. Mark gets right down to business, and John takes a much different approach as he writes his Gospel of the life of Jesus Christ. This is Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, and I feel that much of this will sound familiar to you. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, 
Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew doesn't really tell us about the birth of Jesus. Luke does that, as we will see. Matthew, rather, tells us where Jesus came from. It tells the story largely through the eyes of Joseph's perspective. Again, it's beautiful to see the tapestry that comes together between the four Gospels God has given us in the Bible. And it's also beautiful that Matthew gives us some understanding of this man, Joseph. Joseph, while highly regarded, and rightly so among Christians, will remain somewhat a, somewhat a mysterious figure to us until we have the opportunity to converse with him in eternity. But his integrity, his love for God, his love for Mary, his love for Jesus seems unquestionable. So we read that his mother Mary was betrothed to this man Joseph. Now that word betrothed is one that we don't often use in modern language. There were essentially three steps to marriage in the Jewish world of Jesus' time. The first was engagement. This is what we often think of as an arranged marriage, not necessarily getting down on one knee, opening a nice little velvet box with a ring and popping the question of, will you marry me? But again, more of an arranged marriage by the family. The couple would likely be very young and the marriage would be arranged by families, particularly of the woman, and an honorable man would be selected to wed the daughter. The husband-to-be would then prepare a place for them to live. And this is a quick aside that I will interject here because this seems such a strange behavior to us, but because I know we normally scoff at the idea of arranged marriages in our contemporary culture. We have this image of movies, books, or TV shows where we've seen these arranged marriages that are often forced and very unhappy and only done perhaps for some type of economic or social advantage. But we probably overstate the direness of these situations because the parents of these Jewish young men and women were often loving and very involved, and they had a sense of what was best for the child. They wanted to support and help them. And certainly, I believe ideally, strong Christian families are involved in this courting process, this dating process, this process when our children get to the age of they are essentially selecting who they want to marry and spend the rest of their life with. And already I will say as somewhat of a, as an aside that with my boys being young, I pray for who they will marry. I pray that God will provide them a godly Christian woman. I joke with them sometimes and tell them there's one thing that you have to remember when you find someone to marry. And then I will say to them, you must marry someone just like your mother. You've got to marry someone just like your mother. To put a fine point on it, Christians could seek to marry someone who loves Jesus more than they love anything or anyone else, including their future spouse or husband, because if they do, then they will love their husband or wife with the greatest possible love. 
I believe Mary and Joseph had that love. And so there was the engagement, and the second part was the betrothal. This made the previous engagement official, and it was bonding. And during the time of betrothal, this couple were known as husband and wife, and a betrothal could only be broken by divorce. This period lasted around 12 months or a year, and even though it was similar to a period of engagement, it was much more formal. And again, had to be broken officially. And then after that time, they would get married. This took place uh, after the wedding, after the year of betrothal. Jewish weddings were big, marvelous family affairs that often lasted up to an entire week. There are a couple of instances of weddings that we read of in the Bible. In fact, Jesus' first miracle, recorded miracle, happens at a wedding. But alas, all of these plans take place, and then there is a major plot twist. Mary is found to be with child. Now, Matthew just states this simply without the greater detail found in the Gospel of Luke. He simply presents the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus. And this becomes and is a key doctrinal belief of Christians. The virgin birth, however, was difficult for people to believe back then, even now as it is doubted by some. But again, foundational to the truth of the gospel. The truth of the supernatural conception was even difficult for Joseph to grasp. As has been rightly said, the problem wasn't that Joseph didn't know where babies came from. The problem was that he did know where babies came from. And this event was difficult. Now, God would help Joseph to understand, but certainly it appears there are a couple of references, particularly in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, that there was some suspicion that Jesus was born of illegitimate means. But Matthew here, in his Gospel, sets the story straight both for then and now. The virgin birth is inseparable from the deity of Christ and the atonement from, from sins, for sins, that he brought about through his death on the cross. There was no other way of his being born, for if he had been born of a sinful father, says Charles Spurgeon, how should he have possessed a sinless nature? He is born of a woman that he might be human, but not by man that he might not be sinful. Now, Joseph struggled with this, but even in this struggle, we see his honor we read in Matthew that not wanting to make her a public example, he was going to put her away quietly. You know, when people talk about you or me in private, it would be a great honor to be referred to as a just man. We may not know much about Joseph, but codified, codified in the pages of Holy Scripture, we know that he was a just man. He was upright. He was honorable. He was truthful, he was dignified, and he sought to honor God. Being a just man, Joseph knew that if Mary had been unfaithful to him, it would be right near impossible for him to go through with the marriage. Yet, his nature as a just man did not want to make this an unnecessary hardship or stigma upon Mary, so he makes the understandable decision that he will seek a quiet divorce to break off the engagement quietly. In the Jewish culture of that time, as we've already stated, this binding betrothal needed a divorce to break the arrangement. But then something amazing happens. An angel speaks to Joseph in a dream and convinces him not to divorce Mary. 
While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, my grandfather, uh, Ralph Cordell, of course, Papa Cordell, always had an interesting take on this, and I recall one time him kind of helping me stretch my thinking, and he asked me, who do you think had more faith, Mary or Joseph? And his answer was Joseph. And this was his proposition. Mary knew what had happened. She had an angel appear to her while she was awake. Joseph had a dream. Mary knew she had had no physical relations with anyone. Joseph had to take Mary's word for it. For a few months, Mary could feel her body shifting and the flutters of Jesus in her womb. Joseph could only hold her hand in support and believe that what she was saying was true. It is conceivable to believe that Joseph had to put deep trust in God and Mary during this time. Not only conceivable, but obvious. But God did not leave him out of any confirmation and comfort. This angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now, this particular angel is left unnamed, though many assume that it was Gabriel. Interestingly, even the hosts of angels, of all the hosts of angels that are mentioned in Scripture, were only given two names of angels that serve God Gabriel, who is active here in the Christmas story, as well as in Daniel from the Old Testament, and Michael, who is referred to as the archangel. So the dream came while Joseph was thinking about these things. Joseph understandably was troubled by this very unusual set of circumstances in the future and what would happen. Even though he had decided to put Mary away secretly, it seems that he was not comfortable with this. I always try to be very careful not to read something into Scripture that is not there, but Joseph did not seem settled on this decision to divorce Mary secretly. It was difficult for him to believe what had happened, this virgin conception, yet he loved and he trusted Mary. So then this angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David. Joseph, son of David. This was not some high-fluting poetic language. It meant something. The address, son of David, should have alerted Joseph that something was particularly special about this message, son of David being a reference to Joseph's lineage to the throne of David. Then he says, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It seems that this angelic word to Joseph was very persuasive. There's no explanation to how this happened as the angel presents it to Joseph, other than what we have in Luke uh, verse one or Luke chapter one verse thirty-five, where we talk about an, where he talks about an overshadowing. Some of us perhaps are familiar with Greek mythology of Greek gods and humans having physical relationships with gods, but this is unquestionably and unequivocally different. What is happening here? Once again, Luke one thirty-five refers to the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary here as Jesus is essentially placed, conceived in her womb. And he is given this name, Jesus. Jesus in Hebrew means the salvation of Yahweh. As was later stated by the Apostle Peter, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then the angel says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. The angelic messenger briefly and eloquently stated the work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come as a Savior to save his people from their sins. The full redemptive mission from heaven had now come to earth. The description of the work of Jesus reminds us that Jesus meets us in our sin, but it is his purpose to save us from our sins. He saves us first from the penalty of sin, then from the power of sin, and finally and ultimately from the presence of sin. Those beautiful words, yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The angel makes it clear of Jesus' mention. He's not a national liberator, not a political hero, but the savior from the darkness and sinister nature of sin. Wonderfully, the angel says that Jesus will save his people. If he had merely said God's people, we might think to ourselves that it was reserved for the Jewish people alone, but no, Jesus had come from every, for everyone. And all of this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That it might be fulfilled is a phrase that is often used throughout Matthew and becomes a familiar theme. Matthew wanted to present Jesus uniquely as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And he understood this great prophecy that came to us from the pen of Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah 7.14. And then we read in this section the beautiful word and title, Emmanuel, God with us. That's Noah Lynn's middle name. This title of Jesus refers both to his deity, God with us, and his identification and nearness to man, God with us. There is wisdom in prayerfully pondering these God-given words, such as Emmanuel. It shows how low God bent down to save mankind. He added the nature of one of his own creatures to his own divine nature, accepting the frailties and weaknesses. It shows what a marvelous miracle it was that God could add a human nature to his own and yet still remain God. It reinforces the relationship that calls back to the Garden of Eden between the unfallen human nature and the divine nature that these two could be joined shows that we are truly made in the image of God and it shows that we can come to him if he has come to us. Jesus Christ God with us. Whoever you may be, we need no priest or intercessor to introduce you to God, for God has introduced himself to you, so says Spurgeon. So Joseph wakes from his sleep, and he does as the angel of the Lord commands him. And Jesus is born, and he calls his name Jesus. Joseph's obedience is notable. He did not doubt or waver. When the angelic messenger came to him, but he simply is obedient and does what he is asked to do. And so we continue to see the emphasis that Jesus was conceived miraculously here, and Joseph accepts this marvelous foundational truth. And he calls him his name Jesus. He did what God told him to do. It was a common name, perhaps, but it had great meaning that would come to be the greatest name the name above all names. And so with that, the closing of Matthew 1, we have the final statement 
before Matthew tells us of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the more complete birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. You know, God has a habit of choosing weak things to do his greatest works. Mary, who was a little-known Jewish girl living in an obscure town. Joseph, a simple, unknown carpenter from a ragtag city of Nazareth. Bethlehem, a small town that lived in the shadows of the great cities of the day and only had a few hundred people walking around within its limits. O little town of Bethlehem. The entire Christmas story reminds us of how God takes small things and does great things. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, as we looked at that beautiful song that we've been singing for well over 170 years now, God, O little town of Bethlehem, such a warm image pops into our mind of what happened that great night, God of cards that we've seen, movies, plays, posters, so many things that run through our mind. Help us to zero in on that beautiful event of however it may have actually looked, God. We know that it was a thing of glory, a thing of beauty, as God became man and dwelt among us. God, as we continue to go through these messages of Christmas, God, I pray that for myself and for those here, that we would not just hear your word and absorb your word for 20 or 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, but that we would dig deep into your truth, God, and commune with you this Christmas season so that our relationship and our love with you, for you, would grow and our service for you and with you would grow, God, and help us to reach our community, our families with the gospel and truth of Jesus Christ. And it's our prayer that our community, our nation, and our world would know you and worship you like never before. In Jesus' name, amen.